Amen, friends. Christ, our hope in life and death. That's what we're going to be studying and thinking about today. I want to begin this weekend talking a little bit about what we're doing. Because this is the first Catechism Sunday, as I'm calling them. It's the first Sunday where we're specifically looking at a question of the New City Catechism. And trying to see how it faithfully summarizes the teaching of Scripture And what we should learn from it. So I want to start with a few words about catechisms. Some of this is stuff that I've sent out to you guys in blog posts or emails. So if you want more information on this. Or you want to think more about the purpose of what we're doing. I encourage you to look at those if you haven't. And ask questions if you have them. The first thing I want us to see though as we begin. Is that we are stepping out of our series of second Timothy for this weekend, but we're not really stepping out of it because this weekend is an application of what we've seen Paul talking to Timothy about. Remember in first Timothy six, when Paul summarizes the whole of first Timothy by saying, Timothy guard the good deposit entrusted to you guard this deposit that you've been given the faithful teachings of Jesus Christ. And then we've seen already in second Timothy In chapter 1, Paul tells Timothy, in light of this call to share in the suffering for the sake of the gospel, he says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. Follow the pattern of the sound words about Jesus Christ that you have heard from me, Timothy. And then we just saw last week in 2 Timothy 2, what does Paul tell Timothy to do? Take what you've heard from me, this pattern of sound words, and entrust it to others who will be able to teach others also. What we're doing today in looking at the first question of the New City Catechism is we're looking at a summary of the sound words of the gospel. We're looking at a summary of what does scripture teach? What is those sound words? We pass on the scriptures themselves. We are tremendously grateful for God preserving his written word for us. But we also pass on our understanding of those scriptures. And that's what we're doing today as we look at this. Catechisms are one way to do this. The process of studying a catechism or learning a catechism is called catechesis. And the way I define catechesis is that catechesis is systemic instruction in the way of the Lord. In Acts 18, when Luke is describing Apollos, who was one of the early kind of second generation disciples, he is saying that he says that Apollos is instructed in the way of the Lord. And the word there is is where we get catechesis from. He's instructed in the way of the Lord. Catechism is instructing in the way of the Lord, just like Apollos was instructed by those disciples around him. What does God have to say? We know his word where we can look up and see exactly what he said. And then passing on that instruction in a systemic way, in a way that is ordered and makes sense and is easier for us to memorize. So catechisms are a tool to help us do this, but they are not a replacement for scripture. Okay, our main goal this morning is not primarily to just unpack what is our hope in life and death, but... To see that it is a faithful summary of the scripture's teaching. 
Okay, catechisms are subordinate to Scripture. They're not alongside equal with Scripture. They're not above Scripture. They are a way for us to be led back into God's Word. And therefore, they're a way for us to learn Christ as we learn Him from the Scriptures and what the Scriptures teach. There are several benefits or purposes that I want to focus on for us as we walk through the New City Catechism. One of those is that catechisms themselves promote sound doctrine. This kind of sound doctrine that Paul is calling for, this following the faithful pat- the pattern of these words that you have heard, catechisms promote that. They give a summary of what the Bible teaches. And if you have that summary in mind and in your heart, then you're better equipped both to hear good teaching on the word because you have kind of little hooks to hang things on. You plug in when you know that our only hope in life and death is that we belong to God and to Jesus Christ. Then you're able to plug in as we talk about scripture and as we read stories in scripture, you'll be able to see how those connect to that theme that is running all throughout the Bible. Catechisms promote sound doctrine by doing that and also by helping you see and judge other teaching that's received. They protect you from hearing false teaching and not recognizing it as false. They help you to see that anything that calls for a hope outside of Christ or apart from Christ is a false hope, right? They guard you. They guard us. They promote sound doctrine. They not only promote sound doctrine, but they promote discipleship and evangelism. This is a tool to help us both disciple our children and those around us that are younger in the faith than we are. Because they give helpful words that we can say, here's what the Bible teaches on this. And as you read the scriptures, you will see that that's true. And they give us a starting point for conversations when we talk to those who don't know Christ. Catechisms also promote a distinctly Christian culture among the church. What I mean by that is they give us a grammar of the faith to make a common confession. The church nowadays, most of the time, just requires that you say, I believe in Jesus to be a part of the church. And we've seen in our culture that I believe in Jesus has many different meanings for many different people. It's a personal confession of faith, which is important. But we can judge those professions by a common profession of faith that summarizes what the scripture teaches on what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Catechisms help us do that by giving us a common language to talk about our faith. To be on the same page with one another. And when we do that, we stand counter to our culture. As we'll see today, the confession that we are not our own is contrary to everything our culture stands for. And so, catechisms promote a distinctly Christian culture. They, they help the church be the church in a way that's distinct from the world. Those are the good things that I think we're going to gain as we go through this study. One more word of preparation before we begin looking at this question. I want you to know the goal that we're going for here today. In this message, my goal is to help you see that this question and answer is a faithful summary 
of what the scripture teaches. Okay, I don't want you to just take this question and answer because it's, it's good. It's written in a book. It came from Tim Keller at Redeemer Presbyterian, and it goes back to the Heidelberg Catechism and all that. I don't want you to take this just because it's historic or because it's been well said or because people you trust have said it. Those are good reasons to have fair confidence that this is a faithful summary. But I want you to see for yourself that this is a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches. Okay, I want to show you why it's true that it's a faithful summary. And I want to help us think through how having belonging to God and to Jesus Christ be our only hope. Why that is good. What that means to belong to God and why it is good for us. Why it matters. So in light of those goals, would you pray with me before we begin? Father God, help us now. There's so much to unpack here, so much to think about. I pray that you would move in us by your spirit to help us behold your word through this catechism. To be drawn into the story of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ through the words of this catechism and through the scriptures that we examine. Would you help us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Friends, I want to begin our discussion this morning by asking this question. The catechism says, what is our only hope in life and death? And that's the first question that it asks. Why does it start with hope? Why start with a summary of the Bible's teaching with hope? The reason is... Because this catechism is aimed at drawing us into the story of hope in the scriptures. See, our world tells a story of hope. Of hope lost and hope found. That runs parallel to the scriptures and actually starts back in Genesis. But before we get to the story in Genesis, think about the story our world tells for a minute. If you listen to any news broadcast this week, I did last week and I heard it. You will hear language describing how things in our world are broken. You will hear language describing how we live in a broken world. You will hear how our climate has been broken by what we've done and we've got to fix it. You will hear how policing is broken. You will hear how the justice system is broken. You will hear how our education system is broken. You will hear how our election system is broken. You will hear how families are so often broken. We use language like this to describe the world we live in because we sense there is a brokenness. We may differ about what the definition of that brokenness is. We may say this is broken and this isn't. And others may say this is broken and this isn't. And there is a right and wrong answer to that, but that's not the point I want you to see. I want you to see that we all have an instinctual sense that not all is right with the world. That's why you see those headlines. That's why you hear people talk that way. That's why we talk that way. We know not all is right with the world. We sense something has been lost. And so, because we sense something has been lost, we search for it. Our world tries to come up with the answer to the question, what is our hope? Where is hope found? 
some common ways that we respond in the world? What is our only hope in life and death? That we can control our circumstances. We look around us and we say, I see brokenness in the world and I think science and technology can fix it. I see brokenness in my life and I think a different job can fix it. I see brokenness in my marriage and I think a weekend away can fix it. We look at our circumstances and we see brokenness and we say, I think I can fix it and here's how. And we try to fix it by putting our hope in changing our circumstances. It doesn't take long to try that to realize we cannot control every circumstance, right? It doesn't take long of trying that to realize that sometimes no matter what you do, things just won't get better. We know that if our only hope in life and death is that we can control our circumstances, we are in big trouble. And yet that is a solution that our world and even ourselves so often go to. Sometimes we think, okay, if I can't control my circumstances, what is my only hope in life and death? It's that even though I can't control my circumstances, I can control myself and my response to them. So we look from away from outside of us trying to fix things. And we look into us and we say, can I find hope in me? If I'm just optimistic, will that be a source of hope? Can I make things better? By having faith in faith. You'll hear the world talk in ways that say it doesn't really matter what you believe. It just matters that you believe. It might help you for a while. But that's not hope in life and death. Because what about when you just can't believe? When you come to the end of your rope? When circumstances in life and suffering are so deep that your optimism is crushed? Sometimes we look to ourselves and say things would be better if I just had more control over myself. If I could belong to myself and be my own, then I would be able to make everything all right. Friends, this is a fundamental deception and yet we fall prey so easy to it. It was fully on display in the poem recited by Amanda Gorman. At Biden's inauguration. If you saw it, you know that it was a good poem. And it was beautifully recited. And it beautifully summarizes what our world thinks is the hope that we have. The only hope in life and death. She starts out the poem this way. It's called The Hill We Climb. She says, when day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? This never-ending shade, this recognition that we live in a world where things are not all right. Something is broken. And here's the solution she proposes later in the poem. She says this, a couple things I wanted to highlight for you. She says, while democracy, but while democracy can be periodically delayed, it can never be permanently defeated. In this truth, in this faith, we trust. Is that true? Can democracy never be defeated? No. If you put your faith and hope in that, you will not be persevered to the end. That will not last you. Because that will be destroyed, will be taken from you. And you will be left hopeless. She says this. And again, I'm not trying to pick on her. I think this is a beautiful poem. It's just wrong. 
She says this, We did not feel prepared to be the heirs of such a terrifying hour, but within it we found the power to author a new chapter, to offer hope and laughter to ourselves. So while once we asked how could we possibly prevail over catastrophe, now we assert how could catastrophe possibly prevail over us. We found the power in ourselves to give ourselves hope. And therefore, when we face catastrophe, it can't win. What kind of nonsense is that? That is not true hope. It is a nice sentiment. It is a stirring sentiment. But sentimentality won't last. Sentimentality won't bring you hope. The kind of hope that you need in life and death. She ends the poem this way. And every known nook of our nation, in every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge. Battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light, if only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. See, she summarizes what our culture believes, which is the only hope that you have in life and death is yourself. Our culture teaches us the world is broken. We broke it. We've got to fix it. And guess where the hope is to fix it? It's you. Be the change. Friends, that is not the gospel. That is not our only hope in life and death. And we know it's not the gospel because guess what? That does not fix death. Right? Death is the ultimate killjoy to finding hope in ourselves. Death is something that our culture rages against. We try to ignore it while we're young. And then we try to fix it when we start getting older. And then we try to ignore it again a little bit maybe when we're older. Or we just embrace it stoically. But it comes for us all. We will all die. And no amount of sympathetic optimism will free you from death. No amount of attempt to control your own circumstances will free you from death. Death comes to us all. It is the ultimate problem, and it reveals that we ourselves are not sufficient to be our only hope in life and death. I want you to see, though, that the world is right in some sense. There is a longing To fix what is broken. A sense that something was lost. That longing is not wrong. It's just the diagnosis is wrong. And therefore the cure offered is wrong. It's not about belonging to ourself. That's what got us in trouble. In the first place. See the Bible. Tells the true story. Of hope lost and hope found. The Bible tells the story in Genesis. 1 to 3. Of us. Being created and being put in a garden home. And then turning away from our good God to ourselves. Finding in ourselves the source of our satisfaction. And by doing that, breaking everything. Turning away from God as the source of our hope in life and death. And turning towards ourselves. Trying to be like God. As Satan said, take this fruit and eat it and you will be like God. And that broke everything. Because of our 
sin and rebellion. We were exiled from that garden home to a wilderness grave. And in the Old Testament, as you see Israel go in and out of exile, you see this pattern of how they think about exile, which is how we ought to think about exile. And that's exile is death. To be removed from the presence of God in the land that he has put you in. For Israel is death. And for Adam and Eve, it was death. To be removed from God's presence. To be cursed with death that then spread brokenness, the brokenness of sin all across the world. But God did not leave them without hope, did he? Adam and Eve... When they knew their brokenness and they knew they had messed things up, tried to fix it themselves. They looked to themselves and said, maybe we have the power to change it. And they sewed fig leaves. They took creation and they tried to change their circumstances by covering themselves up. It didn't work. God saw right through it. But he promised them real hope, true hope. Right? Genesis 3.15. One day the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. One day the offspring of the woman would triumph over the death brought on by the serpent. Searching for hope is right. But trying to find it in ourselves is hopeless. The pain and hopelessness of the exile, the removal from the garden... The brokenness that we feel even now in the earth as we still are in exile. That brokenness is meant to turn us away from ourselves as a source for hope. And turn us to looking to the only one who can truly bring hope. Which is God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So what then is our only hope in life and death? It's that we belong To God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. That we are not our own. But belong. Body and soul. Both in life and death. To God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. What does it mean to belong to God? What does it mean. To belong to God. In the scriptures. We see that everything that was created belongs to God. He talks in Psalm 50. When he says. That I would not accept this cattle from you because I own everything that I've created. So I'm not, it's not like I need you to give me something in this sacrifice, right? Who has given a gift to him that he, that he may be repaid in Romans 11. We saw this morning or Romans nine, when Paul is talking about the sovereignty of God and he says, what right does the, the clay have to say to the potter? Why did you make me thus? We all belong to God by nature of being created by God, but that's not the kind of belonging that the catechism is talking about. And that's not the only kind of belonging that scripture teaches. Turn with me to Genesis 17, 7. Genesis 17, 7. There is a kind of belonging that the scripture talks about. That is different than the kind of belonging that comes from being a creature created by God. When God chooses a people and calls them out, he calls them out and makes a covenant with them. A promise that they will belong to him 
And that's what he does with Abraham. Here in Genesis 17, 7, we see God say to Abraham, after recapping all the promises that he made, he says this, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will make this promise between me and you And I will be your God. And what that means, we see elaborated on in the first five chapters of the Bible, but specifically in Deuteronomy 7. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. This describes what it means to belong to God in covenant. Deuteronomy 7 6, he says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is Moses talking to Israel. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. To belong to the Lord in this sense, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong is to belong in covenant relationship as a treasured possession. This was true of God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. But this is also true of the church in the New Testament. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, all the way over to the other end of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. Peter takes this language from the Old Testament of belonging to God and applies it to the New Testament people of God. First Peter two, nine to 10, he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now You have received mercy. The New Testament teaches that to belong to God is to belong to him as a people in covenant relationship with him. He has made promises and kept them. We have made promises and broken them. But he reconciled us to him in Christ Jesus. Therefore, the covenant still stands in Christ, the covenant keeper. This is what it means to belong to God. We belong, as the catechism says, in body. Listen to how Paul writes. In 1 Corinthians six nineteen to 20. Just listen. He says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, right? Therefore, glorify God in your body. We belong not only in body, but in soul. Listen to what he writes in Galatians. Galatians two twenty. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself up for me. Belonging to God in body and soul. This includes both life and death, as Paul writes about again in Romans. Romans 14, 7-9, listen to what he says. None of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. If Jesus is Lord of the dead and the living, then death is not an escape from belonging to him. Which is actually good news to us. Because we don't want to escape from belonging to him. We belong in body, soul, life, and death, in covenant relationship to God. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, this means we no longer live to ourselves. Here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, the one being Jesus. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus died so that you may belong to him and no longer live for yourself, but for him who purchased you with his blood. This means that no one belonging to Jesus can live for themselves. This presents us with a problem in the church because so many want to find their help in Jesus without belonging to him. This is the category I mentioned last week of those ones who want to be admirers of Jesus, but not apprentices of Jesus. Those who look at Jesus and say, yeah, I think that's, man, he he did some good things. I think that's, I'm going to put my lot in with him. But want to kind of stay back and not belong to him? Don't actually find any hope from Jesus. It gives them a hope, but it's just the world's hope of hope and hope. Faith and faith. It's just a Christianized version of it. It's the power of positive thinking with the name of Jesus slapped on it. If you don't belong to Christ, then you have no hope in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are not your own. You do not live for yourself. You no longer have the option of being merely an admirer of Jesus. Instead, we are called as those who belong to Jesus. To belong to him and not live to ourselves to be apprentices of Jesus, to be disciple-making disciples, as we talked about last week. This is our obligation, but it's not purely belong to Christ so that you can be a slave to Christ, although that is actually a good thing. Belonging to Jesus is a hope for us, a great source of hope. The idea that we are not our own And cannot live for ourselves is anathema to our culture. It says, what are you talking about? I can't do what I want. No, you can't if you belong to Jesus. Our culture hates that. That does not seem hope-filled. But it is incredibly hope-filled. I want to survey very briefly. Very briefly the blessings that we have in belonging to God. How it brings us hope. There's not going to be time to turn to all these, and that's okay. Look them up later. I'm going to read them briefly, though. Belonging brings us hope, first of all, in life. 
In belonging, we receive the new covenant benefits of forgiveness and reconciliation. This is what Jeremiah is all leading up to. And in Jeremiah 31, 33 and 34, he says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He's talking about the new covenant that we are in in Christ. Declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. If you belong to Christ, it means God has forgiven your iniquity and remembers your sin no more. You receive the benefits of the new covenant. In belonging to Christ, Jesus Christ then is our ongoing advocate with the Father. We saw this this morning in our call to confession, didn't we? If any of us does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who doesn't advocate for those who merely admire him. He advocates for those who belong to him as his bride, as his people, as his treasured possession. He advocates for us before the father he even as we see in john 17 prays for us you want to be encouraged on what it means to belong to christ jesus read how he prays for you in john 17 it is a tremendous gift in belonging to jesus we belong to the one who conquered death and therefore we are freed from the bondage of the devil that is fear of death Right? Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Belonging to Jesus means you don't have to fear death in the same way that those who do not belong to Jesus do. Because your sins are paid for and you are secure in his hand. In belonging to Jesus, we experience then the peace that comes from knowing Jesus in the midst of the world's tribulations. In John 16, 32 and 33, he tells his disciples that an hour is coming when they will encounter persecution. But what does he tell them? Take heart, I have overcome the world. Belonging to the one who has overcome the world means we can have his peace in the midst of tribulation as well. In belonging to Jesus, we are reconciled not only to God, but to one another as one people. That's the entire point of Ephesians 2, the second half, right? 11 through 22. We were without hope in the world. Paul says this, remember That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. You did not belong, therefore, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, he has brought you together as one people, Paul goes on to say. Jew and Gentile together, united. Jew and Gentile reconciled to God and to one another. And he says then in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. 
and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Belonging to Christ, we experience that kind of reconciliation, that kind of building together into the people of God that brings us hope in this life. But it's not just hope in this life, right? That's what the world has to offer too. It's just a a lesser hope. It's a false hope, but it's still hope. The world has nothing to offer in terms of hope in death though. But the gospel does. Jesus Christ, belonging to God and to Jesus Christ, brings us hope in death. In belonging to Jesus, Jesus will not cast us out, but will preserve and persevere us unto eternal life. Listen to John six thirty-seven to 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who belongs to Jesus, if you belong to Jesus, he will not cast you out. And he will raise you up on the last day. Give you the gift of eternal life. In belonging to Jesus, not only will he not cast you out, but nobody will steal you from his hand. Right? Jesus says that in John 10, 27 to 29. He he says that he gives those, his sheep who hear his voice, he gives them eternal life. And he says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Because Jesus himself, if you belong to him, no one will be able to steal you from him. Not Satan and all his minions, not anybody in this world. In belonging to Jesus, we have not only the assurance that he will persevere us, not only the assurance that he will guard us, but the assurance that we have a home. We have a place to belong. After being exiled out of our home in the garden and into the wilderness, into death, we have this promise that Jesus goes to prepare a place for us. Right? John 14, 1 to 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. He's telling this to his disciples before they're going to go through some intense times. Believe also in me, he says. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wants to be with those who belong to him. And he prepares a place for us. And he says, you know the way to where I'm going. Now, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And we know what Jesus says, don't we? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one belongs to God except through Jesus Christ. No one has this hope of a home and a life that will not perish 
but those who belong to Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus himself offers the only hope in life and death. What is our only hope in life and death? It is that we are not our own, but belong body and soul, both in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, hearing this message, seeing this taught in the scriptures, teaches us that anything we would be tempted to place our hope on apart from Christ, or above Christ, or even alongside Christ, is not true hope in life and death. Our only hope in life and death is in Christ Jesus. That we belong to Him and therefore we belong to God in covenant relationship with Him. This protects us from false teaching. This protects us, more importantly, from false hopes. This is a starting point as you minister to those around you, as you want to bring true hope to those who you are in relationship with that are suffering. This is a starting point for true hope for them. I can't tell you how many times this question and answer has come into play in pastoral counseling situations where it has brought true hope that you belong to Jesus, not because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And that in belonging to him, you have true hope and you have true purpose. As we confess this together, it is a confession that Jesus has brought us into a covenant community together. We belong to God and we belong to God together, don't we? And so we confess this hope together. And when one of us is struggling to put our hope in belonging to God, in belonging to Jesus Christ, the words of those around them strengthen their faith and encourage them to truly hope in Jesus. That's what we see as the right response, how we should respond to this truth. Hebrews 10, 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider... How to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Sojourners, let's do that. Let's encourage one another to place our only hope in belonging, body and soul, and life and death to God and to our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is a precious gift that you have brought us to the point of hoping in Christ Jesus. This hoping is not something that we could do. This belonging is not something that we could do, God. It's something only you could do. Transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Causing us To be born, or to be raised, excuse me, from the dead. Us being dead in our trespasses and sins, but you making us alive in Christ. It's a precious gift that you have given us. Would you help us to always confess that you are our only hope. Belonging to you 
is our only hope in life and in death. Would you help us confess that with everything we do to strengthen our faith, to persevere us to the end, and also to testify to your goodness and glory and to invite others around us to hope in you. Would you help us do these things by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.